Good afternoon, and welcome to Free to Be Faithful. I'm moderator Kip Allen. Free to Be Faithful is a religious liberty education and awareness program that was created by the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod in response to increasing governmental and societal incursions into religious life. One of the most important elections crucial to religious freedom in the United States just concluded. People of faith have seen a secular society increasingly hostile to their views. Supreme Court decisions legalizing gay marriage, for example, threats to tax status, and restrictions on freedom of speech are just a few areas of concern. The upset election of Donald Trump to the presidency surprised many pundits who predicted an easy path for Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. Clinton's views were pro-abortion, and she favored other positions unfriendly to many people of faith. Donald Trump has spoken clearly from a, uh, from a pro-life point of view, and he promises to appoint conservative justices to the judiciary. But he's also been friendly to gay marriage, and he's stated other positions that give Christians pause. So what does the future hold for the nation? Tim Gigline is a Washington-based political observer. He served in the George W. Bush White House as vice president of Focus on the Family and a member of the LCMS. Tim and I will discuss the election and what it portends for the country and for the church. Free to be Faithful encourages our listening audience to ask questions on our telephone number in the greater St. Louis area at 314-821-0850. Outside the St. Louis area in North America, the toll-free number is 800-730-2727. The program may also be contacted by email at publicsquare at kfuo.org. Tim, what a roller coaster ride we had this election. Uh, to say it's a roller coaster ride, uh, Kip, would be maybe the understatement of the year. I think it's fair to say that Donald Trump uh, tapped into something and knew something uh, before not only all of the other 16 uh, Republicans uh, who also wanted the GOP nomination, uh, but also uh, Hillary Clinton, who ended up uh, becoming his uh, you know, ultimate opponent. Uh, but even Bernie Sanders, uh, you know, who was certainly the outside uh, candidate on the Democratic side, did not with pinpoint accuracy uh, tap into the emotional vein, uh, into the absolute narrative of the year of the outsider in quite the successful way that Donald Trump did. Now, that's not a, you know, a way of endorsing Donald Trump. It's not a way of saying that you know, Trump should have been the nominee. Uh, but just as uh, you know, sort of cold, hard, empirical analysis, uh, it is quite remarkable uh, what we saw on Election Day. And in fact, Kip, I think it is probable uh, that we could live you know, another hundred years and not see something like that. I personally lived through Bush Gore uh, in 2000, which in all of the American presidency uh, was one of the most electric, unusual years. Uh, but for, uh, for sheer drama and for the sheer roller coaster ride, uh, nothing comes close, uh, and uh, all of us will continue to remember uh, the dramatic events of 2016. Absolutely, and I think you're absolutely correct in that the two major parties, and indeed I think the entire political uh, base, mistook the the mood of the country. There was an entire populist movement out there that no one paid attention to and ignored, except for perhaps Bernie Sanders and, of course, uh, Donald Trump. Uh, both of these people were outliers, 
and yet they they received enormous support. Trump eventually won, and Sanders garnered close to half the votes of the Democratic Party. So that says something right there. You know, Trump was not a Republican until recently, and Sanders was not a Democrat. So good heavens, we we really had a roller coaster. Well, 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 we we did, and I think uh, if I may say. One of the things that is particularly dramatic uh, about this race uh, was how important uh, the Midwest continues to be in presidential politics. In one sense, Kip, uh, you know, if you live in uh, New York or New Jersey, if you live in Washington State or Oregon or California, the so-called, uh, you know, coastal uh, elite, uh, in, in presidential politics, uh, you know, as far as being central to the way uh, in which these contests are ultimately decided, it's just not that important anymore. And that's, that, that's not discounting the absolute centrality of what victory uh, in those uh, states means for the eventual uh, Democratic nominee or president. But it is really not just those battleground states or the so-called swing states, but increasingly it is a subset within that subset. Uh, and I'm not getting too far into the weeds for the listeners. What, what I'm simply saying is that you cannot discount in the 21st century the importance of Michigan, the importance of Wisconsin, uh, the importance of Ohio. Once again, Ohio proved that not since 1960, uh, you know, has that state ever chosen wrongly uh, when it comes to the pre- to the eventual president? Uh, in other words, you you know, to be the president of the United States, you have to win, uh, uh, you know, Ohio uh, on election day. So well, what, I think for all these reasons, it's uh, it, it's a it's a dramatic historic year. I think uh, one thing that really struck me: I was reading today about the uh, 21 names that uh, Donald Trump has listed as potential judicial appointments. And with the exception of one who is currently serving as U.S. Court of Appeals to the Armed Forces, all of these potential justices are from Midwestern states, not from the coast. This is, this is a real change from what's happened in the past. And I think this is especially important to us, again, with the LCMS. You and I discussed on an earlier program the three main issues of vital concern to the LCMS at this point. Sanctity of life, the family and religious liberty. And these are views, I think, that are reflected, I think, more in the heartland than in the coasts. Yes, I, I, I would agree with that. And uh, I don't know, uh, you know, Kip, how many of the people listening uh, actually uh, saw all or part of Leslie Stoll's CB, uh, 60 Minutes interview on CBS Sunday. It was a very revelatory interview uh, on a number of the issues that you're talking about. On the question of abortion uh, and on the question of human life, uh, the president-elect was very clear. He said he is pro-life. He referred to himself as pro-life, I think, twice during that interview. Uh, He made it very clear that because he is pro-life, it will profoundly impact whom he will ultimately select for the Supreme Court. And presumably, and I'm taking a bit of a license here, but potentially, uh, for the 90, that's nine zero other, uh, you know, federal court vacancies, uh, w- which this president has the opportunity to fill. You know, that is enormous, enormous uh, power and influence in the shaping of the federal ju- judiciary for an entire generation. But just knowing uh, that he is committed 
to filling the Scalia uh, seat on the Supreme Court uh, with a pro-life uh, nominee uh, is gigantic. And in also, the way that, yeah, and, and, and very quickly, if I may, in the way that he answered the question, you know, uh, in a very uh, important way on life, uh, he he got it exactly wrong on the issue of marriage. Uh, he when asked, he said that the court had ruled on a new definition of marriage. Some people call it same-sex marriage. Uh, he said that it was the law uh, of the land, and that he uh, said that he was fine with that. So I think uh, I, I think these are you know very deep waters. Uh, he seems to take the right position on human life. He seems to take the wrong position on marriage and family. Well, this is related, I think, also to religious liberty. Uh, where one of the things that we're running into, as you know, is uh, we're hearing cases about where Christian business people are being persecuted for their beliefs. Uh, this is related largely to gay marriage. Now, how can he support gay marriage but also support the rights of people to their religious beliefs, such as uh, Baronel Stutzman, whose case was just heard before the Washington State Supreme Court? I, that's, that's going to be a very interesting way to see how it, how it resolves. You know, I, I'm actually really glad that you raised this issue, Kip. And may I say with that whether it's KFUO, uh, you know, or any other uh, program in the country, I think it is possible you have asked or touched on the most important domestic policy issue. Yes, immigration is important. Yes, taxes and spending and regulation is important. Absolutely, yes, period. But as Christians, religious liberty and conscience issues are absolutely first among equals. If we are not a country that doesn't get conscience and religious liberty issues correct, then we're probably going to get it wrong on a number of other things. And as you suggest, uh, you know, if we have any elected official, whether it's the president of the United States, uh, a governor, etc., if they do not understand that if you support a redefinition of marriage that must be imposed on all 50 states, then in effect, you are also favoring uh, a constricted and a restricted space for religious liberty. Uh, because if you do not have by your conscience uh, you know, the right to make the decision in this area of, of, public, of the public square, then you are definitely restricted in the other. And as you say, Baron L. Stutzman in Washington State, whose Supreme Court case before the Washington Supreme Court uh, came up this week, uh, is absolutely the poster child for exactly what you're asking about. It is, and it's going to be interesting to see how it falls out. Now, you know, the state courts are a little bit different from the federal, although, of course, there's some overlap there. And when the state courts say one thing and the feds say another, the feds generally overwrite it. Uh, one thing I'm looking at here is that, as you pointed out, over 90 appointments to the other uh, to the other courts uh, in addition to the Supreme Court. But where we would have a case where the right of free expression of the religion is explicitly listed in the Bill of Rights, where the right of gay marriage is a judicial inference. I think if these two come into direct conflict, at least in front of a, of a constitutionalist judge, the Bill of Rights is going to have to win. Uh, may I tell you, this is our hope uh, for those who support the Constitution. Uh, you know, but the, but the thing is, and I, I want to stress this as strongly as I can, um, my great concern 
is that, you know, 40 years after Roe against Wade, yes, we are a more pro-life nation. Yes, we have made gigantic strides incrementally. Yes, we have the rising generation of young people who are uh, overwhelmingly more pro-life than the two generations before them. This is very important, Kip, but it still has not gotten us into the position where, you know, we are on the verge of seeing Roe overturned. Similarly, on the question of the absolute titanic decision of Obergefell, Windsor Doma, and the way those Supreme Court cases fundamentally redefined family marriage parenting and therefore uh, constricted our religious liberty. It is going to take, and we have to be patient uh, as Christians, which is difficult to do sometimes when, when we're facing this kind of threat to our religious liberty, but it is possible that we are going to have to, ra- to wait you know, decades uh, to build a new uh, pro-marriage movement, but also a pro-religious liberty movement that will address the issues that you raise. Well, for example, let's let's just say for the, for the sake of argument that uh, Roe v. Wade would be overturned in the, this next session. It's not going to happen, but just for hypothetics. Really what would happen, though, is that it would revert to the states, and the individual states could make up their decisions on that, and some, of course, would retain abortion, others would not. So it, you're right, it's a, going to be a long, drawn-out pro- uh, process. Now, a couple of things that we are looking at, I think, that are very hopeful in that uh, in that fight is that both the Republican Party and uh, Mr. Trump himself have called for the making the uh, Hyde Amendment permanent, which that's the amendment that prevents federal funding being used for elective abortion. And over and above that, Mr. Trump has said explicitly that he would defund family uh, Planned Parenthood. Yes, I am very ultra-hopeful across the board on the life agenda. As you say, uh, we have a pro-life president-elect, we have a pro-life Congress-elect, and a pro-life Senate-elect. And what that will likely add up to is a full uh, or a heavily, uh, more than partial, uh, you know, uh, reduction Uh, of Planned Parenthood federal funding. That's great news. Uh, We will probably have a restoration of the Hyde Amendment. That is great news. Uh, We will uh, probably have a pro-life Supreme Court justice, and we will probably have several uh, pro-life appellate and district uh, federal judges. That is all to the good. Uh, We will have... We're also looking at the potential. I think we have three more Supreme Court justices who are in their 80s. I mean, what are the odds yes. that there are going to be more more appointments before the end of his term? Yes, Ruth Ginsburg is 83. Uh, Justice uh, 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 Tony Kennedy is 80. And Justice Breyer is in his very late 70s, 78 or 79. So you're right. Uh, you know, demographically, uh, we could be facing, you know, in, in a Trump-Pence presidency, you know, up to two, three, four more uh, um, uh, you know, uh, justices who are pro-life and a bevy, and I really do mean this, a bevy of other personnel, which is to say in the executive agencies, the cabinet agencies, a bevy of other pro-life personnel and policies. Well, something else that's coming up, uh, we talked about with the uh, religious freedom. There is the problem where uh, the IRS, under the Johnson Amendment, uh, well, actually, the, the Johnson Amendment means that nonprofits, including churches, may not 
overtly take political stands. That's not to say that we as the Missouri Synod can't say, well, we're opposed to abortion. That we certainly can, but we can't say that we endorse X, Y, and Z candidates. However, one of the things that both the GOP and uh, Mr. Uh, Trump have called for is the repeal of the Johnson Amendment. And this could possibly open up an avenue for such organizations as ourselves to have a larger say in politics. Over and above that, one of the things that really disturbed me about the Obergefell decision was that the Solicitor General, who was arguing for the government's case in that, in favor of gay marriage, said explicitly that churches and other nonprofits could face problems with their tax status should they take stands that they re that the government viewed as discriminatory against same-sex couples. Yes. Uh, in fact, that was one of the most uh, sobering, uh, very sobering exchanges that I am aware of in all of the years that I have very closely tracked the Supreme Court here in Washington. Uh, the uh, Solicitor General uh, was called Donald Varelli. He is no longer the Solicitor General. Uh, but he was in, uh, in early 2015 in the arguments of the Obergefell case. He was cross-examined by Justice Alito. And Justice Alito asked him point blank, if we go down this road, which is to say redefining marriage, don't we ultimately get into a point, uh, you know, sort of in the public square where you, you axiomatically uh, have a essentially uh, you know, a crackdown, a restriction, a constriction of religious liberty, if you follow this logical line of arguments. And the Solicitor General, as you say, uh, Kip, was very straightforward. He said, you know, yes, that, that logically is where we go. And it is. And that's what is so very difficult about a conversation like the one we're having, because it's very tempting, uh, you know, on this hand to say, gee, we have a, uh, you know, a, 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 you know, a potentially very pro-life administration in the offing. That is great news after an eight-year run of having an anti-life administration. That's very good news. Praise God for that. But when it comes to the questions of religious liberty, of the definition of marriage, family, and parenting, we haven't even gotten into the potential Supreme Court case on transgender that arises from Gloucester, Virginia. That case will have major ramifications uh, for religious liberty. On these grounds, uh, I do not feel, even in the political uh, realm, regardless of your party, I do not feel that we have necessarily advanced in that way, even though we may have some very important uh, successes uh, policy-wise, legislatively. But that does not mean culturally or legally uh, that we are in any wise uh, out of danger. I think quite the opposite. Well, Tim, what do you see from Washington as being the main challenges that we in the LCMS and others of faith are going to be facing in the next four years? I think that the biggest challenge that we face without peer is the, is the challenge of conscience and religious liberty. We have a very large percentage of millennials in our great country uh, who, when they are asked their religious commitment, say they have none. Now, I've read that data, and I've read it very closely, and I do not think that that means that we necessarily have a rising generation of young Americans, you know, who hate faith, uh, you know, who, who would even call themselves atheists. It's just that they say uh, that, they, that they really do not have a particular denominational or faith bent. But may I say, when those views 
translate culturally, uh, you have a real problem because what you essentially have is a large percentage of the next generation of leaders who do not have a high regard for faith and therefore potentially, uh, you know, for a, uh, you know, a very reserved and important place for faith in the public square. We have to remember, Kip, that the primary architects of the Constitution, Madison uh, and, uh, and Adams primarily, they said that the Constitution was written, designed for a moral and religious people and for none other. We are going to test that proposition in the years ahead because religion and faith has always had a reserved and a special, uh, you know, accommodated role in the public square. I think that those days, they're not over, but I think that we are coming to a series of debates on zoning, tax exemption, uh, and uh, Title IX, Title X. We're, we're coming to a very important uh, inflection point in that regard. Something else, uh, we've touched upon this base briefly. Uh, now, Tim, I have... You're based in Washington right now. I'm based in St. Louis. But I have lived in Manhattan. Uh, I've lived in California. I spent over 30 years of my life on the West Coast. And there is this huge divide within the country. I have never seen the country this divided at a very basic level. And I'm going to include even the Vietnam War era. I'm a baby boomer, so I remember that one quite vividly. Uh, I've never seen it this bitter, this angry, uh, where... The sides are actually talking out, are talking actual violence, and are are. There's no. I don't really see any, especially on the left. I don't see a willingness to sit down and discuss. The attitude seems to be, you're wrong, you're evil, you're stupid. I don't have to listen to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, may I tell you that's why uh, uh, civility and diplomacy. Uh, is so central in the American experience. How do we revive it? How do we revive it, Tim? I don't, I don't see much... Uh, much. Well, I, I, may I say, I'm extremely hopeful in this regard. I mean, genuinely hopeful, Kip. And I am particularly hopeful because in the American experience, faith and public life go together, which is to say uh, religion and faith have always had uh, a very excellent uh, impact in the public square. Uh, faith has very often acted at the most difficult times of our uh, you know, national experience and in our history. Faith has acted uh, as a way to bring two very difficult, differing sides together. We have to remember that in the most contentious social changes in America, it was the Church who actually took a lead in that regard. We took a lead in the anti-slavery abolition movement. We took the lead in the civil rights movement. We took a lead uh, in the, uh, at, in the uh, co-education of women, a lead in the pro-life movement, a lead now in the, in the pro-marriage movement. But many other times as well, uh, in the revolutionary uh, period of time, it was the churches who were able to get you know, differing sides to come together in goodwill. You know, the, the, the church, the seminary, the Christian school, the, the Christian college and university. Uh, we have always been a force of nature for good. We have been fosterers of dialogue uh, between people and among groups who have very different uh, viewpoints. And I think that this is uh, you know, a real uh, you know, possibility for Christians to stand uh, in these toxic, poisonous differences 
uh, to not necessarily uh, say that, you know, we're going to come into this debate and take a definitive side one way or the other, but that we're going to act as, you know, honest brokers for people who strongly disagree to have a dialogue. I think that that is a very important thing because it is Christ-like, uh, and it's, it's what Jesus modeled for all of us. I certainly hope so. Uh, of course, you know, there's the, I had a discussion with one of our pastors here on, uh, on the, the left-hand kingdom, the rulers of the, of the earth, and he said, you know, God works through bad rulers as much as he does through good rulers, and I guess that's the truth about people as well. We're all his servants one way or the other. Well, may I say, we, we are, and we have to remember that God is in the details. He's in the details of our individual lives, and he is in the lives uh, of, our, uh, of our nation. Uh, God is the giver of government. He is the giver of nationhood. Uh, Emerson famously said that character is higher than intellect. That's right. Uh, you know, this is an opportunity for people who put heavy stock uh, in character, in civility, in diplomacy, in open-handedness and goodwill to come together, even in our great differences, to be able to say, I may fully and completely disagree with your viewpoint, but I want to share the gospel with you. Uh, I want to share with you the good news of Jesus Christ. And I think that this is one of the most important things, Kip, that maybe you and I have ever talked about in all of the time that we've been doing these programs together, because the goal of Christians in the public square is not to beat our opponent. That is not the goal. The goal by sharing the gospel, if our opponent is not a believer, is to rescue uh, our opponent, not to beat them, but to rescue them. Uh, if they are a fellow believer in the spirit of Jesus Christ, it's to sit down in goodwill and, and to acknowledge that we have differences or distinctions, but to say, how can we have a conversation? That Tim, speaking of important. conversation, we're just about out of time. Uh, one thing I did want to bring up in the brief time we have left is that every Sunday at my church and every church in the in the synod we always have a prayer for our leaders that god will grant wisdom and yes. this is what we have to do now you've been listening and, and, and may, may i say uh, we don't have time tim i'm sorry yeah. you you've been listening to free to be faithful a presentation of the lutheran church missouri synod as a religious liberty education awareness program free to be faithful is airs the third wednesday of every month at 2 30 and is rebroadcast the following saturday at 9 30 central time it's also available for download on our website at kfuo.org today's guest was focus on the families tim gigline god's blessing